it wasn't the mortar fire that they were trying to protect me from in making me always have a buddy. It was my brothers in arms. So these men that, you know, were supposed to be careful of us and, and watch us like teammates, I had to watch myself from them. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Welcome to another segment of Stigma-Free Vet Zone. We are traveling to southeast Wisconsin to visit with former Staff Sergeant who served 12 years in the United States Marine Corps, Aaron Schroffnagel. So, Aaron, welcome to our show, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. We have been speaking before the show on your experience in the military and coming home, and then we'll just start for the audience and just share a little bit about Aaron Schroffnagel before she joined the military. Okay, so I actually enlisted October 15th of 2002, so right after 9-11, I was a whopping 21 years old, um, but a little bit about me before all that. I grew up in a small family, just me and my big brother and our two parents, in a little tiny house, um, a horse farm in northern Illinois, in a little town called Caledonia. Um, it has eight streets and no stoplights, so it tells you, I mean, very, very rural. And uh, in fact, my parents still heat the house with a wood-burning stove. Um, we don't have a furnace and I grew up actually doing a lot of stuff solo. Uh, there wasn't a lot of kids my age on the road and obviously it was a farm country area. Uh, and my brother is nine and a half years older than me. So we weren't exactly close when I was growing up. So I got into running. Um, I was actually a competitive runner all the way into college. I, I ran for university of Wisconsin, Platteville. And then um, kind of my running dreams came crashing down on a Sunday afternoon when I, I shattered my left leg. Um, I, I ended up having surgery right away with plates and screws and hardware and all that kind of stuff to kind of put Humpty Dumpty back together. And that plate changed a, a little bit about who I, I was going to become. Um, as I moved forward through my degree, I, I really wasn't happy. I'd always kind of wanted to be in the military. My dad was in the National Guard in the Vietnam era. And, and I really kind of always looked up to him and I wanted to, 
to do something. I wanted to go into the military. I wanted to join the army. When 9-11 happened, I was like, well, that's, that settles that. I'm, I'm joining the National Guard. I'm, I'm going to go serve my country. And I went through all the tests and I went to the, um, it's called MEPS. It's the Military Entrance Processing Station. And they told me after I completed all the physicals and passed them that I would be unfit for the rigors of training and combat because of that plate and, and hardware from that leg break. And I, I was, I was devastated. I mean, I was, I was absolutely crushed because here was my, you know, kind of a lifelong dream that I'd always had from high school. I wanted to serve. I wanted to be like my dad and, and serve in the national guard. And I was prepared to, to do what, you know, whatever was coming down the pipes. And they just told me I wasn't good enough. And it, and it really hurt. I mean, I was, I was bitter. I was sad. I was, I was angry. I was, what do you mean? I'm not good enough. You know, here I am a competitive, you know, collegiate athlete. I played rugby. I, I was a runner. I mean, I, I could run six minute miles and, and they told me I wasn't, I wasn't strong enough. And it, and it really, it, it was a blow to my psyche is a good way to put it. What ended up happening is a dear friend of mine asked if, you know, she, she knew how to cheer me up. And I said, okay, so, and this is at, uh, again, University of Wisconsin, Platteville. And she said, let's go to Dubuque to the recruiting office because the Marines are there and they look good in uniform. And here I was a young 20 something girl. And I was like, well, sure, we'll go look at the, the men in uniform. And I went and I remember walking into that office and the man I now know to be Gunnery Sergeant V, I don't unfortunately remember his last name. He said, oh, you're going to be a Marines. I said, no, I'm not. I was so mad that the army had sent me home. I, I really wanted nothing to do with it. And he said, no, you, you have military written all over you. And the long and short of it is that he, he found a way to, to get a waiver so that me and my, you know, reconstructed leg could um, join. And a month and a half later, I swore into the U.S. Marines. Well, we are speaking with former Staff Sergeant Aaron Schroffnagel. And this is a wonderful story how you got there. It was your dream to, to go in the Army, and yet you ended up joining the Marines. So now you're, you're getting ready to, to leave. You, you've enlisted. You've been accepted into the Marine Corps. And where's your family on all of this? 9-11 uh, has happened. Uh, are they supporting this idea? Is your dad, your mom, brother, all behind the, the patriotic uh, Marine who's leaving home for the first time? Um, sort of. And I say that with a presentation because although my family loves me and supports me in, in, in chasing those types of dreams, my father was none too happy that his little girl was in the, in the Marines. I mean, just in the military in general, he just wasn't happy with it. My mom was very concerned because 9-11 had just happened. Um, Cause again, this was October of 02 and she was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. You're, you're my daughter. And this is just such a hard, hard situation for them to cope with. Um, by the time I came home from boot camp, which Marine Corps boot camp is uh, about three months long, they were completely behind it, totally supportive. Um, they were really quite proud of me. Uh, my dad was a, I guess what I would consider a, a stereotypic dad, like, okay, great. You dropped out of college to join the Marine Corps. So now you need to go back and finish your degree because that's important. 
So I actually, I did, but my family was always kind of there. I mean, they never like abandoned me. They may not have been happy with me, but they were always there for me. So, so now you've come back from, from boot camp. And what were your expectations now? You, you have a little bit of an introduction into the Marine Corps, into the military culture and lifestyle. What are your expectations now for what you're looking forward to in the future? Do you, do you know at this point that you're going to be deployed? At this point, I had no idea. Um, I was in the reserves based out of um, Rock Island, Illinois. And I kind of thought I could go back to college like I'd never left. But then, you know, after, I mean, even though it was just nine months of, you know, boot camp and training and, and my, um, my job specialty, which is, a, I'm a logistics for maintenance, um, at the time clerk, when I, by the time I got out, I was a chief, but, um, I really had no, no idea that I wouldn't be coming home the same. Cause I was like, well, I'm not going to war. So what, what change is going to happen? And it sounds weird, but the first changes was actually in my grades. I, I partied quite hard my first couple years in Platteville. Um, it was the first time being near that many, you know, kids my own age. Cause like I said, I grew up in a rural environment and I actually got kicked out of Platteville twice for bad grades um, with a record low GPA of a 0.9 um, because I drank more than I went to school. But when I came back from the Marines, I ended up graduating um, my last three semesters were all over 3.25 for the GPA. Like I came back and became an almost a B student. Um, it, it kind of screwed my head back on straight um, because I wasn't partying. It wasn't all about going out and looking for boys and, and whatnot. It was no, there's something bigger than you and you're part of it and you better not, you know, let them down. And it really, I guess I, I took more of that, you know, military, I'm proud of it home than I anticipated. I, I really thought I'd come home the same as I'd left and I'd go back to kind of my old habits. And I didn't, I just, I didn't, I got a job and became a responsible rent paying early 20 something. <laughs> so a Marine. Yeah, Marine. <laughs> so now you take us to the point where you you come up against your deployment and how your family feels about that, how you feel about it, and what you expect when you're actually going from Platteville in the military to active duty. Um, so I actually have two tours. So I'm going to talk a little bit about both of them. The first one was 2005. So it was right after the battle for Fallujah, and my company called and they said, you know, we want to send you. We're, we're going to activate you from the reserves um, for a deployment. And I said, okay. And, you know, I no idea what's coming. It's kind of like blindly following. And I found out that I would be the only person going for my unit. So I wasn't going to know anyone. I, I checked in alone. I had no idea what to expect. Mom and dad had like the big send off party and, and all of that kind of stuff. I had actually just met my, my now husband. We'd been dating for, I think a whopping two months. Um, go through the, the workup trainings where you get used to living in the desert, how to prepare for, you know, living in Iraq or in, in Iraq uh, because it's in different, you know, climate than Northern or 
you know, Southern Wisconsin and um, got used to that and, and went overseas. But my family was nervous. Um, my mom, I think, was terrified. Um, my dad was, but he never let anything on. And, you know, my brother's like, okay, go, you know, we'll see you when you get home. Like they didn't, we really had no concept of what was going to happen, you know, cause my dad had served with, you know, and was honorably discharged, but he never deployed with Vietnam. They never called him up. Um, so I was actually the first member of my little family to be called forward. Let me inter- interrupt you just for a second, Erin. Um, so what were your expectations? Now you know where you're going. What were you expecting? I had only what I'd seen on the news of sleeping in dirt, you know, no hot showers, you know, don't know if there's going to be toilets, don't know what's going to happen. I, I had no one. I, I had no, I had no friend to be afraid with. Like I didn't have a buddy from my company that I could go with and be like, okay, you know, here we are the Midwestern kids you know, we can handle it together, but it was very, very isolating um, and lonely. I mean, I made good friends while I was out there, but that initial uh, shock of it was, it felt like a roller coaster. Like it felt like, uh, forgive my language, but it felt like, oh shit, here we go. Like, I I have no idea what's on the other side of this hill, but I know I'm going to go over it right now. And, And I couldn't get off that train. And um, I'm very lucky. My command that I was paired with was outstanding. I had outstanding leadership. Um, I couldn't have asked for better, for a better command to serve under. Um, that really, in my opinion, made a world of difference because, you know, as Mike and I have talked about it, serving when you, when you care about the mission is totally different than serving when the mission doesn't meet your morals. And, and at this point on your first deployment, you're believing in the mission. Yes. I was very much believing in the mission. Um, like I said, I was a logistics coordinator. So uh, the best way to describe my, my job in the military is anywhere near a maintenance shop, there's the office that handles which car needs to be worked on or which one we're still waiting parts for. And that's actually my job. That's what I'm trained for. So I knew I wasn't going to be in the front lines. And there is that kind of cold comfort. Like, I know I'm not going to be infantry, like truly sleeping in the dirt. I'm not a um, motor T operator where I'm going to go on these long convoys. I know I'm going to be in a base. I know I'm going to be behind the barricades, but there's still mortar fire. There's still rocket fire. You still have no idea what's happening. Um, And just the unsettling of it, of just being over there. it, it really felt like I was just walking into a fog that I had no idea what to expect. I, I had no idea what was on the other side. And I'm like, maybe it'll be good. Maybe it'll be bad. You know, maybe it'll be like a blaze of glory, like those Hollywood movies. I had no idea. I was just, okay, like, let's just go. <laughs> so so life, life on the base that you were first assigned to, how did you take to that life? And was that a safe place for you to be? Um, I was, my unit was based out of Fallujah, um, surgical. So we were actually attached to the big hospital base there. And it was 
different. Um, women were never allowed to be alone, which really kind of struck me as odd because the guys in my unit, well, they could go to laundry or they could go to chow by themselves. But as a girl, I wasn't allowed to because it wasn't considered safe. And at first I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Cause there's rocket fire. There was mortar fire. Like we had incoming coming in from the outside. And then it started to dawn on me that it wasn't the mortar fire that they were trying to protect me from in making me always have a buddy. It was my brothers in arms. So these men that, you know, were supposed to be careful of us and, and watch us like teammates, I had to watch myself from them. Uh, we had a little shower trailer that we could take showers on, but we had to keep it locked so that the guys didn't walk in because on the few occasions that it wasn't locked, men would walk in. They know they're not allowed in there. They know it's the females, but like now you're in a very vulnerable, unsafe situation and you don't know who you can trust. It's like, I'm alone. I don't know anybody. I'm, all of my friends are, you know, hours old friends. You know, I, I, you don't have that, that backup of years of friendship and service. It was very, it was very isolating to go, wait a minute. Why do I have to walk around with a buddy? But you don't like why I want to go for a run. I was a runner. I mean, it's what I did. And they're like, well, you can't run alone on base. And I'm like, but you can't keep up. (laughs) Plus you're a Marine. Yeah. And I'm like, West Marine, like I, I can handle it. Like I'm good. Um, I, I should have mentioned it earlier. I was already, uh, in martial arts. I'd been in martial arts since high school. I mean, I was almost a black belt in civilian martial arts and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> and, uh, people don't obviously see my, my physical body when I'm on this podcast, but I'm, I'm six foot tall. I I'm not, you know, a, a tiny five foot one dainty petite little like I I played college rugby. Like I'm a runner. I, I can tackle you without pads. Like I'm not small. I'm not a dainty little girl. Like I'm I'm pretty good at this. I can handle it. And there, but I couldn't go to the gym by myself because over time, Aaron, while being on this base, did you ever sense or, or come to sense that this was a threat? This was a threat more than, yes. than, than just your, your karate might have taken care of? Unfortunately, yes. Um, I didn't know them, but there were a couple of cases of females on base being raped. Um, some of the girls, the guys followed them right into the showers. And they, didn't, they weren't assaulted, but just that invasion is an assault, in my opinion. Um, it was just, it was disturbing to know that it wasn't always the enemy on the outside of the the fence and outside of the barricades that I had to protect myself from. Sometimes it was the very people that were supposed to be watching my back. Um, and like I said, I'm truly grateful for the leadership I had. I had some outstanding staff NCOs that they were good, but you know, if I would have a, a really bad day, you know, and um, hey, let's go grab dinner, child, because you just need, you know, they they looked at me like a like a mentee, like they 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 wanted to mentor me and be a good leader, but they're like, 
we can't take the truck because you can't ride by yourself with me in the truck because then people will think something. And then once that rumor starts, where does it end? I mean, I had a roommate go home on leave because she was there for a year. So she got a one week leave and random men were showing up at our room. Like, Hey, who are you? And I'm like, go get lost. Like, I don't have time for this. I mean, but it's there, there were women out there who gave other women a bad name and you didn't want to mix with them. And you didn't want anyone to ever assume that you were one of those women. But it's not to say that the men all over there were dogs. Most of them are still very good friends of mine and, and really did watch out for me. But, you know, there's always that 1%. And there's always the unexpected. There's always the unexpected. And there's no way you could have anticipated this when you joined the Marines or joined the military. How did this affect you? And I don't want to get off because we're not, we're not here to badmouth the Marines and we're certainly no. not here to badmouth the, the military. But it is part of the experience. So through the end of this first tour, there was that constant threat for you. Yeah, um, it was, but it wasn't, it wasn't until I actually came home that it came full circle. Um, when I came home, my, at the time, first sergeant in my home unit was a creeper and actually did try to follow me into my hotel room. Um, back in the States. Back in the States. So I came from really good sound leadership who, who really, you know, took that mentorship to heart. Like, yes, you're a female, but you're a Marine and, and we're going to raise you like a Marine and, and raise you up in the, through the ranks and, and you're going to be good. And I get home to a, a sleaze dog who's like, I could get you corporal if you sleep with me. And I was like, no, thanks. I'm good. Like I'll, I'll stay a Lance corporal for life. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're not laughing at that, but that's the challenge for you. Yeah. I mean, the, again, the unexpected. Yeah. Um, you know, but you, you learned, you learned that even though you're, they're your brothers in arms, they didn't always mean that they were safe. Um, and you stuck together with your girls. Um, female Marines are very, a very close knit group because we had to be, you know, we're not only female Marines, which there's the pride and all that kind of stuff that goes with it. But we have all been in situations where it's like, well, wait a minute, this isn't exactly safe. Um, so we're very close, but, um, yeah, that was kind of my first tour and, and the in-betweens. My second tour was different. Um, Before we get to your second tour, Aaron, we're speaking with former Staff Sergeant um, Aaron Schroffnagel, who spent 12 years in the Marines. You come home after your first tour. Where, where's your family? Where's your mom and your dad? And the interaction with that, are they happy to see you home? Are, are you aware of what they have been through while you were away on your first tour? I was blissfully unaware <laughs> of the challenges my family went through um, because it was all about me. Like, I knew where I was. I knew I was alive, but you know, my mom, you know, I found out after the fact pretty much sobbed every day because she couldn't, she didn't know where I was. She couldn't call me. She couldn't, you know, she couldn't talk to her only daughter. And my dad was, he was very emotionally charged, but my dad doesn't show a lot of emotions. Um, when I came home, he's like, Oh, I'm so glad you're home. I'm so glad you're home. But I'm a little bit of a punk and I actually surprised my parents coming home. So I didn't tell them I was home 
And I don't know in hindsight that that was the best move <laughs> because I was in Iraq with a rifle like and live ammunition eating breakfast 48 hours earlier. And then all of a sudden I'm in my parents' front porch with my sea bags. And it was so much of a shock for me. It was almost detrimental to my relationship with my folks. Um, and they got my husband in on the surprise. They brought him on a surprise and he didn't know what to do. He was like, he showed up and he's like, I'm standing there. And he's like, hi, like he didn't even know if he should give me a hug. Um, it was very awkward. I, cause I couldn't handle, like, I never unwound from that deployment. Like I never came down from it. I still stayed at that, you know, very standoffish, didn't want my husband to give me a hug, didn't want him to really be near me. And as you know, here we are, this fairly new couple, there wasn't a lot of intimacy. I mean, I was like, don't, don't touch me. Don't come near me. Don't, don't hug me. Don't like, especially not from behind, like trying to walk up behind me. He, I mean, now we've been married 12 years and, and to the day he will not, he's like, no, I will not walk up behind you and put my arms around you because you will freak out. And I'm like, because it was so ingrained that if somebody's doing that, bad things are happening. Um, so, just because. So, we so would it be safe to say that all of the things that you were developing as safeguards while you were there emotionally, this uh, being aware of where you were, who was behind any tree or, or, or who might be lurking somewhere when you came home, the, that what we would call hyper alertness stayed with you. Oh yeah, very much. Um, and it didn't, it didn't get better after my run in with that first sergeant. It actually, that's where it really became pronounced. Um, sometimes I wonder if that hadn't have happened, if I would have, ever gone that way, but I, you know, there's no way to know. Um, it got better with time, but I still had a lot of anger. Um, just frustration. Cause it's like, these people are supposed to be on my team, but I have to guard myself against, you know, guys I share a shop with. I mean, we live in the same, like our little barracks area is the same like they're on the other side of the building i mean there's walls and doors in between us but they're in the same building as me like we we eat in the same dining hall like your neighbors we're neighbors <laughs> we're on the same team we're on the we're same team the same city oh yes like you know you are the guys that we run together and it's like but i can't go run with you anymore like it, it was hard. Yeah. Um, when my roommate actually went home. I had to stop running because I couldn't run if there wasn't another girl. And I'm like, well, I want to go run. So I went running by myself and I got, you know, disciplined by, you know, the staff. Cause they're like, you cannot do that. Like you cannot be alone. And I'm like, but why? Like, why? It never made sense to me. Um, my second tour had a lot of the same, vibe but my my second tour was different because I was married I mean we got married in October and I got orders that I was deploying in January you know by August I mean it took a while because we we were a battalion of marines that was compromised of I want to say 95 percent reservists so very little active duty component um but when you're dealing with that many reservists, you're coming from all different parts of the nation. Again, there's no, not a lot of cohesion. Like we got to Camp Lejeune for our workups 
and there wasn't designated companies yet. Like we didn't even know where we were supposed to report in. There was just nothing. We made it up as we went. It's kind of build as you go. And, you know, at this point I was a newlywed and my husband never served in the military. And I had to have that discussion. I had to come home and go, by the way, your new wife is now attached to this battalion of a thousand Marines and only it was 90 of us were female. I mean, that's almost one to 10. I mean, ratio, the odds are not in my favor for, you know, being safe from, you know, that 1% of the, you know, male populace that, you know, do the, from the danger, from, from the assault. Assault. Um, And I'm like, and are you going to be okay with this? Like, it's a huge degree of trust that I had to put right on his like newly minted husband shoulders. Like, bye. Like I'm leaving. <laughs> like, uh, and and now when you're leaving, Aaron, for the second tour, how long are you expecting to be away? How long is this deployment scheduled to be? My orders were for 400 days, so I was supposed to be gone for just over a year. Um, we left. I want to say we left in April. We did a month in Camp Lejeune where we quite literally figured out where we were in the battalion and built the battalion command structure. And then we went to 29 Palms to go to our desert training where we go and live in, um, out in Camp Wilson where it's a balmy 125 degrees. And then we were in Iraq. Um, I went to Al-Assad Air Base which the nickname for it, now this is in 2009 and into 2010, is actually Camp Cupcake (laughs) because I went from Fallujah Surgical, which is a base, like a, what you would think of in Iraq base. Like there's, there's nothing on it to Al-Assad where they had a little like food truck for Pizza Hut and there was a food truck for Subway. Like you could go have, American, you know, fast food there. I'm like, there was a McDonald's food truck. You could go buy a Harley Davidson there. And I'm like, am I in Iraq? Am I back in the U S I think I'm in Iraq. I have a rifle. Um, but again, you weren't allowed to be alone. But when you're leaving, you're leaving your husband. And of course you're, you're again, getting ready for deployment. You're leaving your parents again and your brother what is your expectation now? You've been to Iraq once before, but now you're going back for a second time. Your expectation, you're much better prepared intellectually to understand what might be there waiting for you. And what was your belief in the mission now? I was expecting pretty much the exact same thing that I had felt the first time. Um, I expected the always having to have a buddy but I also expected my first tour, we, we worked with the Iraqi locals and we taught them, you know, how to get safe drinking waters piped into their house and how to deal with wastewater out of their house. Um, we taught them welding and, and how to run power and electricity so they could have lights. And it was felt like almost like a Peace Corps mission that first time, but it was the mission was good. Like we were the, we were the good guys. I mean, they were the Iraqi locals were willing to risk their lives to to work with us. They were willing to risk their families. So I really expected that kind of, you know, I'm a good guy. I'm here to do good things. This is the honor. This is the patriotism. It was an honor. I mean, it was 
it was a privilege. Like, wow, we're really doing good for this, for this community and for these people. Which my is precisely tour, why you joined up in the military. Yeah, why I joined. My first tour, we were there for the, the very first Iraqi election. Um, and for me as a woman, it was the first time women got to vote for the Iraqi government. And, and that was a big, a big deal. It was, it was just steeped with so many things of this is truly what I joined for. And then my second tour, we got our mission and our mission was the drawdown. It was part of the Obama, Obama administration. And uh, I was like, I don't know what this means. Um, when we got there, the uh, Marine Expeditionary Force was in charge. But our expectation and mission was by the time we left, there would only be a skeleton crew of about 175 Marines left in the Western half of the country. So we had to somehow draw down tens of thousands of Marines and all of their gear and everything that they'd used over the last 12 years to nothing. And, and, and this drawdown, when you're talking about their gear, we're talking about from, from clothing, from boots and shoes and helmets all the way up to... From the desks we built to the boots we wore to the trucks we worked on. Um, to the houses and, you lived in and everything that supplied in them. Mm-hmm. Um, now the houses were, they were mobile. Uh, we called them the cans, but they were like a little tiny Connex boxes or like the back of a, a semi-trailer that it had a wall in the middle and two doors and two windows. And, and that was your living quarters. Um, now that stuff could be picked up and moved onto the big trucks, So they just packed them up and moved them. But the hard stands that we built, like we'd built offices with desks and we had to burn them. Like we had to destroy them when we left. We had to destroy our uniforms that we couldn't bring home. Um, but also the civilian contractors that we worked with, you know, the, the military had bought their tools for military usage. Well, when they left, they couldn't bring them home because they didn't belong to them. You know, Oshkosh truck couldn't bring the tools that they'd been turning the wrenches with. They, they couldn't bring the wrenches home because they didn't belong to Oshkosh truck. They belonged to the government, but they weren't Marine Corps gear where we could roll it back into supply. So we had to destroy it. We had to, we had to make it go away. And it was such a stark contrast from my first tour where it was really hearts and minds and we're building and we're bringing fresh water and electricity to wait a minute. My welding shop's whole job is to burn wrenches in half. Like, well, this isn't the mission what I signed on for. This isn't what I wanted to do. And it was that over and over and over again. Um, my leadership was, was still pretty awesome. I, I, I definitely had some good command, but you know, I wanted to, the, the gym on base offered a yoga class, but I couldn't go if I didn't have a friend to walk with me because I wasn't allowed to walk to the gym yet. I'm like, at this point, I'm a married, what was I, 27-year-old woman. And I'm like, I can't go to the gym by myself. Like, what? <laughs> and by this time, what rank are you? you you've some I was a sergeant. So now you're a sergeant and you've been in the Marine Corps for how many years? Um, at that point, I'd been in for, let me do the math in my head, about seven and a half years. And, and was my eighth year overseas. And, and um, so you're still under this self-preservation or, or self-awareness yeah. or hypervigilance. Uh, and now we with a mission that you don't really believe in. And it shook me when, like, we had a suicide base or when, when Marines would die, it, it, it just didn't have the same, the same feel to it as my first tour. Like at least the guys, it's a cold comfort, but at least if they 
you know, were killed in the first one, it was because they were fighting the enemy, not fighting bureaucracy. And it was just so angering. Like, wait a minute, my life is worth, you know, I felt like I was a check in the box for somebody to get promoted. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm worth more than this. I mean, I'm a U.S. Marine for crying out loud. I was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. You know, I I left my brand new husband for this. Like, it's not what most newlyweds want to do. I mean, and it just, it felt wrong. And it, it, it infuriated me. So would you say that there was a different value on life from the two, yeah, from the two different tours? And you mentioned earlier, you said this rage. Uh, do you feel this building or, or are you just be, becoming accustomed to your own reaction and who you're becoming without really being wide awake to it, right, or, uh, of the effects on you? In hindsight, I can say it was definitely building. But at the time, I just thought it was me being... This is what it's about. <laughs> like, this is what it's about. You got to have a chip on your shoulder. You know, you got to be a little, a little salty, I guess. And, and I wasn't, and I'm like, that's not who I, who I was. I was always a very happy, positive, you know, outgoing type of person. And now I was, I was frustrated. I was, I was just mad. You know, I, I wanted to go run. I wanted to go run off that crazy that I felt, you know, in the back of my head, like, how was I so angry? I mean, I, I was just, I was angry at everything. I, I, we had a girl who lived uh, two doors down from me who liked to sit on her front step and talk with the guys. And it infuriated me because I was like, go away. You're going to give me a bad name and a reputation. And I've already been through that and I don't want to do it again. And it was, super, super stressful because she wouldn't. And then we were at odds, but you're not supposed to be at odds with the other females because they're the only ones who can walk with you to go get dinner. And it's like, it, it, everything about it just felt off. Like now I look back and I go, there was just so much anger that I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to vent it in a healthy way. Um, all I looked forward to doing was going home and just going back to my life and just forgetting this ever happened. Like I went, it was fine. I'm not a hero. I didn't do anything. Like don't talk about it. Don't bring it up, you know? And I was just going to just go back to life. You know, I wanted to go back to see my husband. So during this time, Aaron, while you're deployed, are you speaking? Are you in communication with your husband and with your parents? Uh, Do you have, either by cell phone, by mail, and how is um, that communication going? Are you, are you able to communicate what you're actually experiencing yeah. or is it, is it part of communication over there was really, really good. Um, especially because I was attached to, um, Al um, Al-Assad, which is an air base. So you're talking a massive base. It's one of the big airfields coming into the country. Um, so as far as bases go, we were kind of in the metropolis, like outside of Baghdad, we were it. And we had internet in our, in our cans, in our, in our sleeping areas. So I had my laptop and I could actually video call, um, back then we used Skype, um, home every day, every other day, and actually video see my husband. I could see my mom. And that was a huge, huge relief, um, to just have that at least visual connection to my loved ones. Lots of phone calls, lots of emails, um, letters. We still did the, the traditional mail call. 
but you're still so isolated because my parents, you know, as much as I love them, they're like, you're a hero. And I'm like, no, this isn't what heroes do. This is, this is no, like just the thought of it made my stomach turn. I'm like, I'm not a hero for doing this. I'm, you know, and that, that just fed into that frustration and rage. So, of which that came out when I came home. Yeah, so let's go home then. So now you're coming to the end of this deployment. And what are your expectations when you go home? And, and what is actually there when you get home? When I came home, my husband and I had actually closed on the house while I was gone. So he did the whole closing process. And I was like, this is going to be great. I'm going to go home. I'm going to be with my husband, of which we've been married at this point a year. I missed our first wedding anniversary during the p- deployment. Um, I said, but in all pretense of the word, like we were going to be newlyweds again. We had this new little house. Like, this is going to be great. I was thinking like Americana, white picket fence and a dog. And I remember coming home, you know, and my family met me at the airport. There's the flags and the stuff. And I'm like, I don't want any of this. Just go away. I just want to go home. The transition from Iraq to home was maybe 76 hours of being in the U.S. without a rifle, maybe. Um, So maybe three days to go from this hyper-vigilant alert, have a rifle on me, can't go to the gym by myself, to back to the wilds of the civilian population. And I'm like, okay, yeah, it'll be fine. I'm I'm just going to go back exactly like I had when I left. Because this was my second tour. I've done this before. I've done this before. And the day after we got home, you know, because my command is like, bye, we'll see you. We'll give you a 96. You know, we'll see you in four days. Go enjoy, you know, your family for four days. Go have a party. Go to a bar. Go do whatever. Like, bye. Have a good time. Um, It really did feel like I was being released into the wilds. And that first morning, I woke up at about 5 a.m. I'm a fairly early riser to begin with naturally. Um, and the military service definitely honed that skill. And I didn't know where my shoes were because I wasn't there to unpack. My husband did it all. And I remember grabbing a flashlight and slamming it against his forehead. And I yelled at him. I said, wake up fucker. And I'm like, where's my shit? And he's like, hi, honey. And I'm like, because I was angry. I was like, I, I, I couldn't. And now I look at it and go, I can't believe I was that mean. I mean, I love my husband. Like I couldn't imagine not being married to this man. I, I truly consider him my winning lottery ticket. Like he's one of the best things that's ever happened in my life. And I was like, it just, the tone and the attitude that I took with him and it, it didn't get better from that moment. It got worse. Um, the longer I was home, the angrier I got. My boss at work uh, used to criticize me for um, trying to be too much of a leader because my civilian job, I was a secretary in a maintenance office. I mean, very parallel to my, to my military job. And he's like, well, you're not the manager here. And I'm like, but I'm the leader here. So either you're going to be the manager, I'm going to take over. And it just, it spun from there. And so I'm fighting with my managers at work because I was just angry. I mean, and everybody thought I was, you know, 
wanted to treat me like this great war hero coming home. And I was like, I'm not a hero for what we did. I'm not ashamed of my service, but by no means was this an act of heroism. Like, no, like, no, it, it, it's wrong. It, it was just, it, it left me with such a bad taste in my mouth. I started drinking a lot. Um, on days that I would, when I was be home, I would crack my first beer at about 1201. Um, cause I had a rule. I wouldn't drink before noon afternoon game on by dinner. I normally had already polished off a six pack. Um, and the fighting got worse. I mean, I, I was starting to wonder if Andre and I were going to see our second wedding anniversary. We decided to remodel the kitchen, um, cause we'd saved almost all of my income and, um, from the deployment. And I'm an avid cook and I was very excited. I was getting double ovens and fancy cabinets. And this was going to be that Americana white picket fence, perfect little kitchen. I'm going to be able to cook for my future babies. Glorious idea that I had romanticized in my brain that this is what I was going to be. I was going to be like Mrs. Cleaver, like whatever, like I was going to be the perfect little housewife. And underneath it all, I'm still a pissed off, angry, now drinking excessively U.S. Marine with anger problems. And I remember the day they dropped off the cabinets to be installed in the kitchen and they put the box the wrong direction in the garage so that I couldn't open it to see my new cabinets. And I remember standing in the driveway and berating Andre, my husband, for almost three hours, like just yelling at him, just ripping him apart as a human, as a person, as a man, as a husband. And I'm appalled at my own actions. And that was kind of where he drew the line and he goes, you need to go get help. Like, this isn't the woman I married. This isn't who you are. You're bitter. You hate yourself right now. And you hate how you're acting to me. I'm incredibly grateful that he didn't just walk away. Like he should have, I would have, I would have been like, if somebody treated me as poorly as I treated him, those first four or five months at home, I would have, I would have been done. I would have been like, no, I'm done. I mean, cause this was, this went on for like probably not even four or five, probably closer to six or seven months. It went on like this. It was just bad. We're speaking with former staff sergeant, Erin Schroffnagel, who spent 12 years in the U.S. Marine Corps, and she's uh, sharing with us her experiences after her first deployment in Iraq, which she, uh, where she believed in the mission, to the second tour in Iraq, which was completely different. And now coming home to really not knowing where this internal anger is coming from, uh, I'm assuming that there wasn't just the angry outburst, but there must have been the intellectual uh, distancing from your husband, uh, the, you know, no intimate experiences in, in conversation of what you were, you know, just doing for the day. It must have been all of this anger that he was facing constantly, uh, the way you're explaining it. But were there times where you were actually enjoying life the way you had before the military? On the, on, on the days of, when you got married, you know, where you had good times going to the beach or doing those sorts of things, or was life just pretty much you in this angry state? Looking back at it now, probably that first year that I was home, everything was anger. That was the only taste that I can, I can recall is everything, 
even the good times that we had, and we did have some really good times. Um, I, I was still angry. I, I, I just couldn't seem to shake it. So it's like, when I look back at those memories, they're tinged with that, uh, like a color of anger. Like it was just there. Like it was always, maybe it wasn't at the surface. Maybe it was an undercurrent, but it was still there. I was still a little sharp with my words that I didn't need to be. Um, I had a very biting personality and it just wasn't, it wasn't what he deserved. It wasn't who I was as a person. So then I started to cover it. You know, I started to really develop that mask and put on that persona of, oh, yep, everything's fine. Hunky dory back to normal Aaron, like smile, happy, you know, happy, happy. Let's have another beer. Let's have another beer. And I, I got really good at faking it. I got really good at faking that the anger wasn't a problem and that I wasn't bitter, that I wasn't depressed because this wasn't what I wanted. I mean, I felt down on myself. Like it brought back the feelings of why well, wasn't good enough. That's why I got sent on this tour. I mean, and it really brought it out um, until those days that I'd get home and a six pack in Andre'd walk through the door and it all came back out. And again, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for him and, you know, the broad shoulder that man has to carry my temper. Um, but now, now you're in your, your driveway and he has yeah. challenged you and said, you need he to get help. Me. Did you get help? I did. Um, I actually went to the VA and they set me up with a counselor by the name of Joanne Cooper and Dr. Cooper I don't think I could have found a better counselor. She had three adult sons, all of which were in the military. And she was a military mama who was not going to take any of my shit. (laughs) She sat down with me and she goes, you're going to pull your head out of your ass. (laughs) It took a couple of, it took several weeks and months of some pretty hard sessions. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Like it was like, I turned this corner and I'm like, and I got to, I guess I got to look back at everything that I'd been through and everything that I, I thought was really me, but all the way back to the real me, which was behind it all. And I'm like, Oh, there I am. Like, there's the happy, let's go run, you know, positive spunky person that I've always been. And things started to get better. Like it definitely got better. It started to really get better right around the time um, about a month before I gave birth to our first child. And it just, I was going to be that great mom. And, but there was still depression. There was still issues that I had to grapple with. So it was a very hard process. Um, Going back to school was a huge proponent for me because that put me back in contact actually with the veteran community. Um, I went back to school when my daughter was two months old. And so at this point I'd been home for about two and a half years and I met up with a group and we, they founded a group facility at UW Milwaukee called the Maverick, the military and veterans resource center. And it was like the first day walking in there felt like walking into home. There was cuss words and foul language and totally offensive jokes 
with textbooks and coffee around. And it was like being with my Marines again. And I was like, I get it. It's the, I was missing the Marines. I, and I was still in the service, but I didn't have that connection with my unit anymore. And I found it again through now the veteran community. And it didn't matter what branch. I mean, we always poke fun at each other, especially being in the Marines. We poke at everybody and, or what era it didn't matter if you deployed or didn't deploy, if you were, you know, infantry, or if you were, you know, a logistics clerk, it didn't matter. Um, we all shared that same flavor to our stories. Like we all had that anger and it's like, I get it now. I get what Dr. Cooper had been trying to talk to me about. And all of her sessions and all, everything she taught me really kind of sunk in. And I'm like, okay, this is where I belong. This is what I need. And it really, really did a, a wonderful job repairing that damage and letting me let go of that anger and the frustration of that second tour and the frustration of having to watch my back from people I was serving with that I shared a uniform with and I was able to get it all passed. And I, I got connected with a group called the warrior partnership at the medical college, which is actually how I got to know you, Mike and the warrior partnership and the, the friends and the camaraderie of just that veteran community really got me through the hardest days um, in that healing journey. I mean, it really did just, reconnecting with people who understood the language. I mean, they maybe didn't wear my boots, but they had their own boots. And so at this time, Aaron, uh, is Andre watching this progression and uh, yeah. a smile coming back to his face uh, yeah. and, and enjoying the company with you again? I mean, are you seeing yeah. this change? Definitely huge improvements in our marriage. Um, things were doing much, much better. We were actually had a second child. And so at this point we had two little girls and I was expecting our third and just things, it, it was, it was good. I mean, I was going to school for psychology and medicine. I was on the Dean's list. I was back into running. I was running half marathons when I wasn't pregnant. And, um, you know, I, I had this little family that, I, I would give everything for, I mean, they were, they were my world and it, it was good. Like I, I'd actually decided to get out of the Marine Corps, um, about three weeks before I gave birth to our second child. And it was one of the toughest decisions, but at the time it really was what was best. I needed, I needed to heal from, from the tours, from my service, from all of the mental aggression and frustration and worthlessness that I felt coming home and dealing with it. And then it was probably one of the best moves I could have done at that time is to, you know, focus in on my family and my education and move forward with reconnecting with that veteran community and really working for them. One thing that you had mentioned earlier, Aaron, was the the depression that you were feeling. And in our conversations before earlier today, you mentioned how the physical activity is a much better, has for you been a much better therapy for the depression, your, your diet, your physical exercise, uh, as opposed to, and again, we're not here to talk about medication to approve it. I'm sure that there are uh, 
I'll, I'll just say we're not here to speak about medicine because we're not qualified. But running, jogging, heavy-duty exercise, uh, and proper diet has been a very good uh, therapy for your depression. Yeah, for me personally, um, again, like you just said, I want to echo it and say this is just my personal experience. My body does not really like any pharmaceutical modifications for mental health. Um, I react very negatively to almost everything we've tried and had multiple scary situations where the depression gets really, really bad, um, almost to suicidal ideation and attempt. And again, Andre would kind of swoop in and go, you need help. Let me get you help. Let me get you to mental health, urgent care at the VA. Um, when I had apathy and I, I just couldn't feel any happiness. Like I couldn't feel anything. I was like, I was numb. And what I kept going back to is actually my running. Um, and it, we joke about it now, but I run to burn off the crazy. And it's, I, I hate to word it like that, but for me, it, there was so much truth behind it. I was the days that I would work, on campus in research and study and I'd bring my running shoes with and I'd go, I'd see how many suburbs I could hit by myself. I was running alone again. I was safe to go run alone in Milwaukee and I would run for, you know, nine, 10, 11 miles. And I was just fine. And I'm like, and I was safe again. I was, I was back into pouring all of my stress and all of my troubles into those those steps in the pavement, I would pound that pavement away and I'd get home and I'd, I'd cook these meals and I, I really got into cooking. Um, and I'd start I, by that point, I was making almost everything from scratch um, to the point that when I went back to school after giving birth, my second child, uh, you know, I took a couple months off and went back in uh, spring semester. I had all of the dinners prepared already in our deep freeze. Like everything was done. Like, all of our food for the semester was already ready um, because I was like, I've got this. I can handle this. I can handle anything. I was the fixer doer could handle anything, you know, Marine who's also a mom. And I, I had that hard charging attitude and it really, it's kind of like my life was finally coming to order that I wanted. Um, and I know Mike knows that story, but, it all shifted and the, you know, February 5th day when my daughter fell. So I, I guess I kind of want to share that with you, Mike, and with anybody out there. It's my, the long and short of that story is my daughter fell. Um, she went under a railing and landed on her head on concrete and I found her, I was 26 weeks pregnant with our third child. I found her unconscious and not breathing on the floor. And it, my perfect little ideologic Americana white picket fence world, once again, was laying in shambles on the floor. Um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to cope but I turned back to what I knew. And two weeks after she fell, warrior partnership spring sessions were going to happen. And I went and I 
I still to this day will never not be grateful for that veteran community who, even though the trauma that I witnessed was so vastly different, they were there. I mean, they supported me and really got me through that darkest of days of, of worry and wonder. And now it's my child. I mean, it wasn't me on the battlefield. It wasn't rocket fire in Iraq. It wasn't, it wasn't even the risk of assault. It was, you know, my beautiful little 17 month old baby girl, you know, that was laying on that gurney. And that veteran community that I had connected with, that I had started building relationships with and, and started networking in with really, really pulled me out of that depression um, and that feeling of helplessness with her. Um, we are speaking with Marine <laughs> Staff Sergeant Aaron Schoffnagel. No, you're doing a wonderful job. This is an extraordinary story, but your ability to articulate it and share it as an educational experience with our audience is extremely valuable. So now we go back and you've been through the depression. You've been through the, as you mentioned, suicidal ideology, the anger, the rage, the um, dislocation from your husband. I'm talking about emotional dislocation, not, not physical dislocation, but, but that distancing from him through the alcohol, through the depression, through the... Uh, sounds like a very important step of your husband asking you to go for help and, and going to the VA and we're not backing the VA on this particular thing, but just going for help somewhere. And you took that step, which was very important, getting some guidance, but it really comes down to you as the Marine, as the person, as the woman who decided to take responsibility for what you were doing. And, and how important is that to not look at the mental health profession as the people who are going to sprinkle magic pixie dust on you, but maybe they can help you and guide you in the direction to help you see that you need to take control of this situation. Um, my viewpoint is that it's always up to the, the person. I mean, the, the phrase that my family always uses is you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And I look at, the, the mental health profession and even my husband as kind of that water. You can lead me to it. You can submerge me in it. But if I don't want to, I'm not going to drink. I'll drown before I take a swallow of it type thing. And for me, it was, it was bigger than me. It was what I felt, you know, when I joined the Marine Corps and went back to college that first time, when I, that second tour, when I married my husband, it was bigger than me. And knowing that now another person was relying on me, maybe not financially or anything like that, but, you know, we were a couple and that relationship, he was relying on me to kind of hold up my part of that relationship meant it was bigger than me. And I had to step up and take ownership of the problems that I was causing. And I think when I did and I started getting help, I'm not going to say that I took every single bit of that woman's wisdom to heart because I didn't. Um, but I did listen. And I guess I kind of cherry picked the tools that I figured would really help me go forward because not everything is going to apply with everyone. It's not a one size fits all um, deal. And, you know, she was, she's like, you've, you've always been a runner. You've been a runner th from high school. You, you ran college go back to running Aaron. And I'm like, you know, that's a really good idea. And, you know, she's like, you have to stop drinking. And I'm like, 
I don't want to. Drinking is like a band-aid on a bullet hole. It, it allowed me to forget all of the, the anger and, you know, kind of ripped that band-aid off and I had to deal with it. I mean, I had to go, I've been a complete shithead to my husband who's been nothing but an amazing man. And I have to kind of swallow my pride and apologize. You know, again, I'm grateful to my husband because he's just like, it's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but I'm glad you're back. Like, welcome back, Aaron. Like, there's my wife. Welcome home. <laughs> Maybe now you're at Camp Cupcake. <laughs> yeah, now I am. <laughs> but, but one of the things that a lot of us experience when we come home is our internal rage. We are our, our experience. It's about me. It's about what I've been through. And I, I think part of our project, part of our goal in the podcast is to the awareness of the healthcare for the family members. And so in retrospect, uh, would, would we be advised at least to be under the understanding if we're having difficulty, we're having depression, we're having drinking problems, we could at least afford our families the compassion to say, I understand that this is difficult. I don't know exactly what I'm doing. I, I'm not understand why I'm having these difficulties and I know it's affecting you. But please understand that I'm going to go and get help somewhere so it's not affecting you. But I, I think a lot of us have caused our families uh, significant damage uh, emotionally and, and sometimes physically by just being so absorbed. As you said, you, you internalized. And this started when you were in Iraq, internalizing and shutting down. Uh, so would it be would it be wise message to share that we could all have done this a little bit earlier in our experience? Yeah, I'm grateful that I, I got help as early as I did, I, I, I truly don't know where I would be um, if I hadn't, if I, if I had pushed that away and I, I mean, I would have lost Andre. Um, and, but I look at my family and I go, if only they, I wish there was a way, you know, that they could see that it's like, I'm not doing this to be cruel and malicious. I'm doing this because I don't know any other way. I'm doing this because all I see is rage. All I see is red everywhere. And I, I couldn't, you know, my parents, I, I would fight with my parents and they're like, it feels like we're just walking on eggshells around you. And I'm like, stop, don't. And they're like, but if we don't toe the line perfectly, you blow up. I mean, you just, you just come unglued and, um, you know, kind of what you just said, Mike, I, it, our families need to also understand it's like, it's okay to go. I don't understand what you're going through and we need to get some help. Cause every, I mean, the VA offers couples counseling, but I was like, well, we don't need couples counseling. I need counseling. And he could use some counseling therapy and going, this is what she's dealing with. And this is how you need to cope. Um, but that is couples therapy. That is counseling. And it's like, I wish, I wish that was more prevalent. I wish it was more accepted. I wish it was more accessible. I mean, so many, so many marriages would be in totally different situations. I think if, if that had been obtained earlier, but that help is out there now, there are places to go and, and, Anyone in the audience who would be listening to this can certainly go to our website at Orban Foundation for Veterans or go to Maverick or go to the VA or go to your, uh, go to your primary uh, provider. 
Yeah, primary provider, primary your, your county veterans service officer. Every county in, this, in the country has a county veteran service officer. And at least get started at looking. And I think that many of us have said it sounds like a coin phrase, but take that first step and, and start to think about your family, think about yourself, know there are answers. And the people on this podcast are living proof that they have been through struggles very similar to many of ours and that uh, there is help and there there is a place to stop and turn around and there is hope but we would also like to take the opportunity today and Aaron's not really certain wasn't aware that we're going to do do this but Aaron Schroffnagel 12-year veteran of the U.S. United States Marine Corps is going to become our co-host on this podcast and specifically because uh, Bob and I are are, are not uh, not as qualified. I'll be very honest about it. I have five sisters. We're not qualified to interview women <laughs> who have been in the military. Qualified well. <laughs> to interview? Doesn't have a different. You know, <laughs> yeah. So uh, officially already starting. We'll be doing her first. Uh, I, I believe has already lined up a, a first interview with another female veteran. But we're very very excited that we can add this dimension to our podcast, and that would be the experience of the female women um, veterans, and and Aaron's going to instruct us on how to say that properly, whether it's female veteran or woman veteran. But we're very excited to look forward to this. And Aaron, thank you so much for coming on today and uh, being our guest. And can't thank you enough. And I really, honestly, especially with five sisters and being a dedicated veteran, look forward to all the work that you're going to be doing to help educate uh, the female veterans who, who come to our podcast for help. So thank, thank you very much. Say one, yeah, last, think, say one last word of what you would do if you could do it over or what was one great thing you experienced in the military or share, share you're going to have many more opportunities, but share one with us today. Well, I'm going to give you two right off the bat. And I, I just, <laughs> I want to say that I am so incredibly grateful to continue my work in the veteran community because it's so healing for myself. Um, and just the ability to work with you and Bob, it's, this foundation and the podcast, I really, I, I, it's a, it's a huge honor and I, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity. Um, but to answer your question, (laughs) something I would do different, I would have listened to the people when they said, if you need help, go get it. There's no shame in it. You didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with reaching. It's not a hand out. It's a hand up. Um, and really like the, especially the veteran community, we've all, we've all been somewhere. I mean, even if it's just, you know, camp cupcake, we've seen things, we've done things, we've heard things, we've endured things, but we've done them together and we're not alone in the healing. So it may feel lonely, but you know, you don't travel the road alone. Aaron Schroffnagel. Former Staff Sergeant, U.S. Marine Corps, thank you so much. And we sure look forward to you uh, being part of the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, 
understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.